This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Go to GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Hello, and welcome to Daily Drive. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. What did the Canada border blockade look like on the ground? And what might it mean for automaking in North America longer term? More on that later. First, let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. In Washington, sometimes change happens quickly. Often it takes a while. Here's a story from the second category. NHTSA has finalized a rule that allows automakers to install adaptive driving beam headlights on new vehicles. The move is in response to a 2013 petition by Toyota, which asked regulators to give automakers the option of equipping vehicles with more advanced headlight systems. The rule satisfies a requirement in the bipartisan infrastructure law passed by Congress last year. Advocates say adaptive driving beam headlights provide more illumination while not glaring other vehicles. This is big news for suppliers of advanced headlights such as Hella. The technology has been allowed in Europe since 2006. Next up, some stories from around the EV world. Fisker has opened reservations for its second model. The startup says the five-passenger vehicle is aimed at younger consumers and will start at $29,000 before incentives. Fisker says deliveries for the EV, dubbed the PAIR, or Personal Electric Automotive Revolution, will start in 2024. The automaker says it has partnered with Foxconn to produce the PAIR in Ohio. Production for Fisker's first EV, the Ocean Crossover, is expected this November. It will be built by Magna. Another EV startup is facing more troubles. Canoe has reportedly lost several key executives in recent weeks. This says the company is under investigation by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Bloomberg's sources say Canoe's vehicle program lead and software controls chief are among the recent departures. The losses complicate Canoe's efforts to begin manufacturing electric commercial vans this year. The company lost CEO Ulrich Kranz to Apple's car project early last year. The SEC is looking into its 2020 merger with a blank check company. In China, Audi and its state-owned partner, FAW Group, have received approval to begin construction on their $3.3 billion EV plant. Work is scheduled to start in April. The factory will begin production in 2024 and have the capacity to manufacture 150,000 vehicles per year. The venture plans to produce three electric models, including the e-tron SUV, at the new plant. And Mercedes-Benz is expanding its electric vehicle plans to include a new high-performance model. Early next year, the German luxury maker will bring the AMG treatment to its planned EQE midsize sedan. Mercedes says the high-powered EV will get 677 horsepower, and the vehicle will have an estimated 320 miles of range based on the European standard. Pricing was not announced. And our final item, Stellantis has come up with a novel way to slim down its payroll in France. Bloomberg reports that Stellantis is sending its workers emails with tips on how to get exciting new jobs outside of the company. Employees are routinely sent alerts on career fairs and services to help write winning resumes. 
Union reps are accusing management of harassment over the issue. A company spokesman says the emails are to help those who might be interested in a voluntary departure program. The company is reportedly looking to shed 1,400 workers in France this year. And that's the news you need to know. The blockade that kept autos and auto parts from crossing the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario has been cleared, but the protests aren't really over and neither are concerns about ongoing efficient trade between North America's two biggest economies. I check in with colleagues from Automotive News Canada after this. Listen to Fred Hayes, service manager at Temecula Valley Buick GMC, and Philip Candido, fixed operations director, talk about their experience with GoMoto in their service drive. Before GoMoto, the backups in the service lane were due to not being able to get to the customer in a, in a timely manner. There's times where menus are passed over where the advisor forgets to tell them, hey, it needs its major service. And now with the GoMoto, customers are presented with a maintenance package every time. The time freed up from not having the customer sitting in front of them every single time they come in. It helps them be more efficient. It helps them focus more on the customer's concern and the, the maintenance and service of the vehicle. Before GoMoto, we would average approximately 130000 in service gross. The kiosk in the service drive doubled the gross profit in the dealership. It's amazing, 100%. Using the GoMoto kiosk makes the dealership more profitable. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency just like Temecula Valley? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters. The closure of the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan last week was a costly one. Direct industry losses came to about $300 million, according to an analysis by the Anderson Economic Group. Economic activity broadly was stifled by about half a billion Canadian dollars a day. That's about $400 million in U.S. dollars, according to Finance Minister Christia Freeland. Even as COVID restrictions are starting to lift, protests continue and some in Canada's auto industry are concerned that the country could become less attractive for investments in factories to make autos, EV batteries, or other parts. To get a feel for the mood there, I reached out to Automotive News Canada colleagues Greg Lason in Windsor and David Kennedy in Toronto. Greg Lason, David Kennedy, welcome to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Greg, you have been on the scene, the boots on the ground, what was it like there last week by the bridge? It was angry. Um, more than anything, it was angry, I think. Um, and it was a bit chaotic. I, I didn't see a lot of organization from the group of people down there, but I felt a lot of anger. Um, you know, this started out as a quote unquote trucker protest. Um, people uh, angry at the vaccine mandate that required long haul truckers, cross border truckers to be vaccinated in order to do their job, but it morphed into something. Um, much more angrier than that. It was anti-vaccine, it was anti-masks, it was anti-lockdown, and it was anti-Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. And when you have all of that thrown together and all of that chaos and no real leadership and no real plan, um, it just became a jumbled bunch of pickup trucks and about three to five tractor trailers and a whole lot of people sort of milling around the street 
and bringing North America's uh, auto industry almost to its knees by just blocking one single international crossing. And, and that was astonishing to me. Someone described it as a few pickup trucks and a couple slow pitch teams being able to stop 25% of trade in North America. And that's exactly what it was. And they were angry. So the police, the various police entities came in, got the bridge reopened, but it isn't exactly free free flowing traffic just yet, is it? No, not really. Um, what they've done is they, any road that intersects with Huron Church Road, which is the six lane municipal road that leads to the foot of the privately owned Ambassador Bridge, all of those roads that intersect have been closed. So you've essentially created a funnel for transport trucks that are US bound and then for transport trucks that are entering Canada. Um, commercial traffic seems to be flowing okay. The idea is to make sure no one can cross Huron Church and set up another blockade because that's really what they're worried about is, is some of these people coming back and doing the same thing over again because they are on four or 18 wheels. Um, you don't know what they're up to when they drive down these highways. There are no checkpoints leading up to the bridge. So there's a real um, concern that it might happen again. It has the potential to. And so this is just one way to try and stop anyone that shouldn't be there from being there. David, you've been looking into some of the longer term implications uh, risk to Canadian manufacturing and what 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 are you hearing on that front? Yeah, Jamie, there's uh, there's a lot of concern going on at the moment, really, I would say. Uh, and there's kind of two main buckets that it falls into. One is sort of the new investment concern, you know, just as in the U.S., uh, a lot of Canadian businesses at the moment uh, and, uh, you know, the governments are working on big battery plant announcements and trying to attract uh, new electric vehicle assembly to, the pro to Ontario and beyond. Uh, so it's created this uh, concern over whether or not there will be a chilling effect on those sorts of new investments, uh, as well as, you know, we've obviously been going through, you know, there's been fairly onerous cross-border restrictions just going on from COVID over the past two years. Uh, and there's concern that, you know, this, uh, I think one source told us that, uh, you know, this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back in a sense that, you know, this is just going to be the full unraveling of things, uh, seeing how that border uh, is so important and not being able to get goods across it just might ruin some of the business relationships uh, that have really been going on for, for decades between Windsor and Detroit. Yeah, Greg mentioned earlier, you know, that the the protesters were were angry, and they they seem to think they'd really be uh, firing up some anger in the North American auto industry, <laughs> which doesn't seem to be their target exactly, but certainly is a is a victim. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they don't. I mean, has there there wasn't any particular animus toward the industry, right? It's just it's the government and their frustration with how. The pandemic is being handled? 
That's certainly the sense that we get. Uh, there, there just really hasn't, uh, there wasn't anything directed at auto. It was, I think it was kind of collateral damage when it came down to it. Uh, whether or not the people cared that it was collateral damage is another thing. Uh, you know, I, being on the ground there, Greg, I think ran into a number of people essentially saying that, uh, you know, they didn't care uh, whether or not there were layoffs tied to this, whether or not uh, assembly plants ground to a halt. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, the mayor of Windsor got up and essentially said that uh, it turned more into an anti-government protest than it did anything else uh, over the course of uh, the week or so that it went on. I'm curious if the economic costs, and of course the numbers are all over the map, but they're significant, if that turned more of the public against the protesters, then maybe would have been sympathetic. Either um, either of you, if you have a thought on that. Yeah, right now, opinion is 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 certainly against the protesters. I mean, this these polls and surveys have fluctuated back and forth. When it first started, there were a lot of people that were behind them, and now as it drags on in Ottawa, and now that it was a six day protest that really brought a lot of industries. Um, sort of to the forefront and they were affected. Uh, people in those industries now don't necessarily agree with the protests. And you had mentioned, you know, were they targeting auto? Absolutely not. They, everyone that I spoke to and everyone I listened to on those protest front lines said they were sort of at their wits end on ways to get the prime minister and even premier Doug Ford in Ontario to listen to their concerns, to hear them that they were fed up with all of these things. And the only way they could do that was to stop the free flow of trade. This was a, an attention seeking effort by the protesters. It worked, but it also did damage as David has said. And just to add to that, Jamie, I think um, obviously there there is no consensus on uh, whether or not, you know, people support these protests or not. I think say they don't. Uh, but there's also a few others going on in the country, I'll name the biggest one being in Ottawa. And uh, certainly, uh, if you were to go to downtown Ottawa, you would find a lot of angry, angry residents there that have, uh, you know, been putting up with this for almost three weeks at this point, and are kind of, uh, as Greg kind of mentioned, at at their wits end in a different sense, uh, but at their wits end with the protesters themselves. Uh, so uh, yesterday, actually, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau got up uh, and in invoked the Emergencies Act uh, to try to combat some of this that's going on both in Ottawa and at other borders uh, that are, we've seen crop up uh, at a couple spots in the country. Uh, so we're really going to see this come to a head sooner rather than later. The Emergencies Act sounds serious. Uh, what does it allow the government to do? Is that open the door to impounding people's trucks? Those are you know, certainly major investments. <laughs> People are, that people are putting on the line. What it does is it allows the government to sort of seize control over the jurisdictions affected by um, these protests and blockades. It's very, in this case, it's very specific to public disobedience, which is how it's been described in Ottawa. So it allows them to sort of be the point person or point agency to clean up this mess. Yes, it does give law enforcement a bit broader power to do things that it wouldn't normally do, perhaps a little lower bar in terms of rounding folks up and impounding cars, as you've mentioned. Um, but what it does is say, we, the federal government, are in charge of this situation now, uh, not necessarily the Ottawa Municipal Police Service uh, or the Ontario Provincial Police or the RCMP. And this was a huge issue in Windsor because there are so many jurisdictions at play. Right now, 
with the Emergencies Act invoked, the federal government is essentially in charge. And hopefully, um, for those in Ottawa, they will start to see a resolution to this problem with an actual plan that gets put into action. And uh, Jamie, when you say it sounds serious, it sounds a little bit less serious than uh, the predecessor act, which is the War Measures Act, uh, which this one replaced at some point in the 80s. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's a little bit uh, of a downgrade, perhaps, from that. But at the same time, yeah, it does, as Greg was saying, does give them greater powers uh, to sort of take control of the situation. And one of the other things that's going to come out of it as well is that, uh, as we've sort of been talking about, a lot of the anger through this has been directed at uh, pri the prime minister. And this act kind of makes him own it uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, he is going to either, you know, come in and save the day and get rid of these protesters or, you know, things are going to come off the rails and he's going to be to blame. So we know there were some threats. There was a lot of talk about taking a convoy to shut down the Super Bowl and and then march it back uh, toward Washington. It doesn't seem like Obviously, nothing happened in Los Angeles, um, but what kinds of concerns are there going forward and what is the reason for hope <laughs> that this won't be a persistent and really crippling problem for North American auto production? I think, that, you know, we've seen protests. What was going on at the same time was a protest on Highway 402 where farmers had lined up their tractors in one lane and that almost went unreported because it was in the shadow of the Ambassador Bridge protest. So these kind of things are going on in some very critical areas of infrastructure in Canada. You know, you're talking parliament, um, which would be like surrounding the White House with tractor trailers. Um, you're talking the Ambassador Bridge, 25% of North American trade crosses that bridge. You're talking Highway 402, which is the alternate route for truckers when they can't cross at the Ambassador Bridge. And the biggest concern in all of this is these are mobile rolling convoys that can be brought to any part of the country at any time to shut down anything they really want if they just drive in and throw it in park. The only hope I have is so far, for the most part, the protests down here haven't been as organized as the ones in Ottawa. There's been a lot of infiltration into their social media channels and they're planning channels through um, apps online. And so there is a resistance growing and they're trying to infiltrate these things. But I really don't know, Jamie, how you stop a group of people from driving their pickups and their semi trucks to certain places if you don't know that they're going there. Um, I think this is going to take a lot of surveillance from law enforcement to figure out their next move. And they need to be one step ahead of them. The whole reason they ended up in Windsor was because someone up near Sarnia was ahead of them because they had targeted the Blue Water Bridge first. And when they were thwarted, they came to Windsor. And it was almost a race between the police and the protesters to get to that foot of the bridge and the protesters got there first. There is one other shred of hope, right? A new, uh, a new bridge being built nearby? That's huge. The Gordie Howe International Bridge is scheduled to open southwest of the Ambassador Bridge sometime in 2024. It's six lanes. It is entirely owned by the federal government of Canada. Um, that is in stark contrast to the privately owned Ambassador Bridge, um, which was part of the reason this anything at the bridge is a bit uh, convoluted to enforce because it's a privately owned bridge at the Ambassador Bridge. 
Then there's a little plot of CBSA land, which is federal land, and then it attaches to a municipal road, which then attaches to a provincial highway. So when you move things over to the uh, to the new Gordie Howe International Bridge, you're just dealing with a federal agency and a provincial 400 series highway. So it's a lot easier to police, a lot easier to staff, a lot easier to reinforce and fortify if need be. Um, and I've had two auto executives tell me that if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it is the Gordie Howe International Bridge. So I would imagine if you're lobbying US politicians, you're saying, hey, look, by the time you decide to pull up stakes, build a new plant, switch suppliers or whatever the, the case may be that you're thinking of doing, within two years, we'll have a new bridge. The bridge will be there before you can make those moves. So I think that's really what Canadian auto execs and suppliers are going to sell to the automakers that are based in Michigan or have plants in, in sort of the Midwest that don't make any move. It will take you longer to change gears than it will for us to finish the bridge. David, any last thoughts from you? Uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, ray, rays of light at the end of the tunnel, the only other thing that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, the rallying call for these protests, uh, whether or not that's it's truly what they're about or not, has been COVID vaccine mandates. Uh, and when it comes down to it, uh, it's kind of ironic that the protests have cropped up now, because at the same time uh, that the protests seem to be gaining steam, the vaccine mandates seem to be on the wane. Uh, a lot of provinces have started to open up restrictions uh, and we're kind of headed in that direction where we're going to not uh, impose these quite as rigorously as we have been. So that's another thing that uh, without, you know, without that rallying call, we might see these fade away on their own. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Greg Layson in Windsor, David Kennedy in Toronto. Thanks for your coverage. It's been great. Very welcome. Thanks a lot for having us, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. You can get all the news on North American trade, EV manufacturing, and everything else automotive at autonews.com. Thanks to Jack Hallauer for editing today's show. Thanks to the ANTV team and web editor Victor Galvan for their help. And thanks to you for listening. Now, let's get back to work.